invite you to open your Bibles, as Jacob's already noted, to 2 Peter, and we're going to look at uh, the first part of chapter 1 tonight. Uh, good to see you. I hope you had a good day. Uh, I have appreciated very much the, uh, the song leadings this week. Y'all, boy, y'all are very blessed with some really good song leaders. Uh, but, but I have to tell you this, uh, and uh, Will will remember this, uh, one of the interesting things about preaching is the songs that are led right before you preach. And I offer this not as any kind of criticism of anybody, but I have a kind of a warped sense of humor uh, and, you know, we just sang about getting through the testing and the trial and the tempest. And, you know, every time you sing a song like that right before the lesson, my thought is, okay, is that the way that, that, uh, that we're approaching what's coming up? When I was at Conway earlier this year, we did, uh, what, what's the name of that? Keep Me Through the Storm. Uh, is that the name of that yeah, till the storm passes over. Uh, in the hour of trial, you get some real interesting, you know, be with me, Lord. Uh, so thanks so much uh, for, uh, for that encouragement this evening. Uh, I hope you're having a good week. I've appreciated uh, so many of you uh, being here all week. Uh, I've appreciated your comments. I, I trust that these studies are profitable to you. If nothing else, that hopefully they will refresh uh, in your memory and in your mind, how significant are these two epistles? Uh, because I think sometimes they are overlooked because we are fascinated by uh, the brilliance of the Apostle Paul. And, and, and I think sometimes we just really don't grasp how practical First and Second Peter are, are for us in our day. So hopefully these are helpful, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, I, I thank you for following and uh, studying along as you have done so. Uh, we're going to skip over to the second letter tonight. I know that that means we didn't do anything with chapter 5, and, and actually you can make three or four lessons out of the things that are in First Peter chapter 5. Uh, but there's some things in Second Peter that, uh, given our limited time, that I really want to emphasize before our time is over. So tonight we're going to look at the first part of Second Peter 1, which may be the most recognizable part. Of, of the epistles of Peter. You've heard lots of lessons on this. Uh, and then tomorrow night, we're going to look at chapter 3. So we're going to skip over chapter 2. I, l- let me begin by offering this kind of observation about these two letters before we actually introduce tonight's lesson. First uh, Peter starts off, as we've talked about, with this emphasis upon our relationship with God. But if you'll notice as you get to chapter 2, really the rest of First Peter is about... Uh, the difficulty that comes with our relationship with God, uh, whether it is suffering, uh, whether it is being in circumstances where we uh, are under authority that we have to submit to and do good, even though things aren't always uh, the way we would want them to be. And, and so it's interesting to me, Peter starts off with, remember who you are, remember who's, who you belong to, remember your brethren, and then brace yourself to deal with this. There's a sense in which he does the same thing in the second letter, but it's a different issue. If you've studied 2 Peter, then you you probably are aware that much of the letter revolves around warnings about false teachers. Uh, If we we were going to go all the way through the first chapter, uh, that's where Peter goes beginning in verse uh, 15, uh, that you, that you be careful that you don't divide, that you follow, don't follow cunningly devised fables. And then he goes into chapter 2, which is all about 
uh, false prophets and those who are coming. And then chapter 3, which we'll talk about tomorrow night, uh, which addresses those who prompt doubt. And so Peter starts this letter in many ways in the same way that he started the first letter, and that is, let's remember who we are and what we're doing, okay? So that's where we're going to go with this study uh, this evening, and I kind of want to begin it this way. Here's here's what I'd like you to think about conceptually. Uh, It is often the case that when people obey the gospel and and they're new converts, that... uh, that they begin sometimes for months, sometimes for years, and they're just on fire. They are enthusiastic. They can't wait to come to worship. They can't wait to tell people uh, about the changes in their life. They can't wait to tell people about the gospel. They can't wait to tell people about the Lord. Uh, And we've all seen that, and probably a lot of us have been there. And, and, but eventually there is a pattern of behavior that happens with new Christians. And in the sports world, it would be called the sophomore slump. If you've ever, if you're familiar with football, baseball, you see it in almost every sport. Somebody breaks onto the scene, especially in professional sports. And because they're new and the other teams haven't seen them and they don't know how to defend them or they don't know how to, uh, to pitch them or whatever it is. And they just had this phenomenal rookie year. And then the second year comes along. Other teams start adjusting. All of a sudden, they've got new contracts. They've got a lot more money, and, and, and the production drops off. Well, the same thing happens with Christians. Uh, it may not be the second year. It may be after a few months. But what happens is people get used to the idea of their newness, and uh, the enthusiasm starts waning, and the emotion starts changing, and maybe some difficulty comes along, or there's some challenges to schedules, or they're having to start integrating all these principles in their life, uh, and maybe they're not studying as much as they should, maybe their interest is not what it ought to be, uh, and the dominoes start falling. They'll, they'll start missing a Bible class here or there, start not coming to the gospel meetings, and next thing you know, they're not here on Sunday night, which none of y'all come on Sunday night anymore. Uh, but, you, you know, the, you, you just see the pattern. And, 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 and i tell you what's the fascinating thing about that, not just that that happens, I want you to note people's reaction to that. Because invariably, as a preacher, this is what I will hear from people. Well, I haven't seen oh so-and-so in a while. You know, it seems to me that there's just, they're, they're kind of falling off here. And, and uh, we're not following up. Now, very often they tell that to me <laughs> or to the elders. And what they mean by that is, you're not following up. And for some reason, we kind of have it in our mind that it is the responsibility of the entire congregation that each person grows. Let me say, and we've already made this point, it is a part of our work to ensure that we help each other to grow. But ultimately, Christianity, discipleship to Jesus, is an individual enterprise. I'm going to say that again. Ultimately, Christianity, discipleship to Jesus, is an individual enterprise. Nobody can do it for you. Nobody's going to make you grow. Nobody's going to to give you the environment. You're going to have to determine, no matter what happens around you, that you're going to serve the Lord. And very often when we talk about collective responsibilities and the work of the church and 
We, we get so sometimes involved in this we mentality that we forget that it's just me and the Lord. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have desired to, 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 to have a relationship with Him. I am the one supposed to be making sacrifices. I am the one that's supposed to be serving. All these things that we've talked about uh, all this week, if nobody else in this congregation does them, it's still your responsibility to do them. And, and that's, that's a frustration. And, and sometimes we're not comfortable with that idea. And yet, uh, it, it is an issue of my focus, my understanding, my direction. And that's really where Peter starts 2 Peter chapter 1. And so here's the question that, that we want to answer. Whether you're a fairly new Christian that's starting to go through this waning enthusiasm, or whether you've been a Christian a long time and the enthusiasm waned a long time ago for you. The question is, what am I supposed to be doing? Can you answer that in your life? Everybody in here, can you answer in your life what it is I'm supposed to be doing as a child of God? I, I think it's a question we don't entertain very much, and I think it's probably a question that a lot of us can't answer very quickly. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, and uh, beginning, beginning of verse 2, uh, as, as he ha has made his uh, introduction Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us by or to glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust." But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, for, an in, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I want to make two or three observations from this section of Scripture, and I, and I really want to focus on a part of this section that we probably don't focus on. More often than not, when we study 2 Peter chapter 1 and the first part of the chapter, we immediately jump to this add to your faith part. But, but I want you to appreciate that Peter emphasizes something before he gets there. The, the first point of emphasis and the first point that I would make is that Peter would have us to appreciate how important God's Word is, God's revelation, God's revealed will. If you didn't catch it because we read through it, he mentions this a couple of times and talks about the things that grow out of the Word of God. And let me suggest to you in our introduction, when people start waning in their enthusiasm, when people start uh, failing in their service, when people disengage themselves from other Christians, when people let temptations get the better of them, 
I can almost guarantee you that the biggest problem is they're neglecting the Word of God. There is a failure or, or there is some kind of digression that comes in their appreciation of God's Word. Now, now, let's think about this for a minute. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 is a fairly familiar passage of Scripture. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We all familiar with that? Have you ever thought about why that is the case? Why it is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? It's not academic. It's not mechanical. I mean, you've been hearing the Word of God if you've been here all week. Your faith hasn't necessarily grown just because I've said it. it that's, that's not his point, the more you're exposed to it. The, the, the point is, the more you come to appreciate God's revelation, the more you come to know God. And the more you come to know God, the more you learn to trust God, because trusting God is, is just like trusting anything else. We come to trust people because we know them. Uh, there's a lot of you that probably are exceptionally trustworthy people. But I'm not a trusting person. And uh, I'm not going to hand you my wallet and ask you to hold it for me. And you may say, well, that's not fair. I'm a Christian. <laughs> I've known some Christians that take advantage of that circumstance. My trust comes from understanding people, from spending time with them, from getting to know them to the point that I realize this is a person that I could give anything to, and I would never have to think twice about it. And that's the way we develop trust in one another. That's the way we develop trust in God. How do we know that, that we're really forgiven of our sins when, when God says, believe and be baptized for the, for the remission of your sin? Well, we know that because we can see all these times throughout history, beginning in Genesis, going all the way through Revelation, where God said, I'm going to do something, and God did it exactly the way He said He was going to do it. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. So our trust in God comes from our appreciation of the Word of God. If your faith isn't growing, it's because you're not giving enough time learning about God. Because that's the only way you're going to come to trust God more. What we have studied the last couple of days addresses, here's the way God wants you to look at suffering. Here's the way that God wants you to look at being under authority. Here's the way that God wants you to look at one another as brethren. Here's the way that God wants you to do these things. If you've come to trust God, then those things become important to you. But it's only when we spend time in His Word. It's not going to happen miraculously, and it's not going to happen just because you show up to services a couple of times a week. Our relationship to the Word of God has to be serious with us, folks. Not just out of academics, and not so that we can answer the questions and shake our head, not so we can come to Bible class and fill in the blanks so that we in our relationship with God can come to greater trust. And, and because of that, the key to really growing is found there. You remember back in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, where we are told one of the things that's supposed to happen as a result of our relationship with God, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby? Why is it that we grow as we come to a better understanding of God's Word? Because we come to a better understanding of God's will. What is it that God wants from me? If I don't know what God wants from me, I can't become a better servant. And if I don't know God better, I can't determine how I'm supposed to imitate Him because that's we understand, is, is, is ultimately the goal here. So I want you to appreciate that 
Ultimately, discipleship is tested by our relationship to the Word, which is why Jesus said, John chapter 8, if you continue in my Word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. How do you know God's will? People say, well, you know, God's got a plan for me. I just feel it. No, you don't. You do not know God's will that way. What you know is what you think God's will ought to be and what you want God's will to be, not what God's will is. I'm much concerned when our people don't know the book the way we ought to know the book. Not just because we are lacking in our ability to defend our faith, but because we are lacking in our faith. And so Peter starts off putting emphasis on the Word of God. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that I can come to appreciate all that God has done for me? Remember, we started off talking about the mercy of God toward His people. How do we know about the mercy of God? Because God tells us the way He treats His people. How do we know about God's favor that's poured out upon all men? Because God has told us these things. It's not something that we sense. It's not something that we feel. Our appreciation of the grace of God comes because of the salvation that's been revealed in His will. So you want to really understand grace? It's not a better felt than told thing. It's not a spirit leading me around thing. It is a, I'm reading my Bible and see what God is doing thing. Grace and peace. Well, why is it that some Christians just seem to be steady? That they, 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 they don't get riled, they don't get overwhelmed. What is it about those people? Have you ever noticed that anybody that's like that is also a good student of the Word? I've never, I've never known somebody whose faith is really strong and consistent who couldn't sit down with you and explain pretty much anything you wanted to know about the Bible. Because real peace with God in our life comes as a result of our appreciation of the Word. Look at verse 3. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory or to glory and virtue. How do I know what God has in store for me? You know, is it a near-death experience? You know, I had knee surgery and I'm on the operating table and there was a problem and the anesthesia failed and my heart stopped for a couple minutes and all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing my, I'm hovering above my body and there's a, there's a bright light and I run off and in a minute they're banging on my chest and I come back and now I know what God has in store for me. I can't explain everything that happens in those circumstances. I do find it interesting that they're almost all alike. But I can tell you what you don't know. You don't know what God's like, and you don't know what heaven's like, and you don't know what eternal life is going to be like, and you don't know what the resurrected body is going to be like, but I can answer all those things. I can answer all those things because God tells me what the resurrected body is going to be like, and because God tells me who's going to be in heaven, and because God gives me a glimpse of His throne, and God, as He reveals Himself, helps us to understand everything that pertains to life and godliness. And more than that, He answers my questions. I've had several discussions with people this week, and I I want you to listen very carefully. I'm not offering this in, in any kind of criticism, but because it's pertinent to two or three discussions I've had with some of you individually this week. 
how do we know what to do? How do we not know what to do when we come together and worship? How do we know what to do in our responsibilities to one another? How, how do we know how to live relative to the world? How do we know what I'm supposed to believe as true, what we would call doctrinal issues? How do we answer those questions? There's only one way to really answer those questions with any confidence, folks, and that is to look at the authority. I would remind us that when Jesus ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, what he tells the apostles is to go into all the world and preach the gospel uh, to every creature, make disciples of all the nations, whether you're reading Matthew or Mark, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but at the end of Matthew's account, he says, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. I think this is really important to appreciate. If we can't find it in the Scriptures, we shouldn't be doing it. And that's just kind of a bottom line uh, of, of maybe a starting point in my mind about establishing biblical authority. If Christians in the New Testament, when the apostles were there who are carrying out the commission of Jesus, if they're doing something, that's what we need to do. If they're not doing it, we're, we shouldn't be doing it. And somebody always says, well, what about this? Is this okay? Sometimes I don't know how God's going to deal with certain things. But I'll tell you what I do know. I do know what Christians were doing under the direction of the apostles. And, and, and as long as I'm doing what Christians were doing under the direction of the apostles, then I understand things that pertain to life and godliness, the imitation of God. And that's what I'm after. I was reading a discussion today about authority and what we would call pattern authority called CENI in, in academic circles these days, and principal authority. Let's just look at the big principles of, of Christianity and let's make sure everything conforms to those things. And I'll tell you what I have observed in my life, and maybe it's not true across the board, but I haven't seen many circumstances where it's not true. When people start questioning the Word of God, they start questioning the Word of God because they want to do something that they can't find in it. It has been the case in, denom in denominational issues. It has been the case in institutional issues. It has been the case as brethren have kicked around things about marriage and divorce or the concept of fellowship. Nearly every discussion, what happens when somebody says we're not approaching authority properly, it means that there's something they want to do that they can't find in the Bible, so they're going to change the way we look at the Bible. Peter begins with this emphasis. All things that pertain to life and godliness come from our knowledge of the Word of God. And if you get to verse 4, he even goes so far, or goes farther and says, by which, and, and we're still talking about the knowledge of Him, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's what we've talked about all week. The things that God has done for us, the fathering that God has offered, the inheritance that God has offered, these new relationships that God has offered, it's the knowledge of God through His revealed will that we know what God is doing for us. Do we know how? No, we don't always know how. And I suspect we don't always have to know how or God would have told us. But I do want you to appreciate how significant it is that we stay tethered to the Word of God. 
because that's where Peter starts. If you look then at verse 4b, the end of verse 4, I do want you to appreciate that he goes even farther to say uh, that, that through these, the promises of God, you've escaped the corruption that's in the world. Ultimately, the, our end, folks, is, is to be like God again. That we were created in His image, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. What God does in the redemption found in Jesus Christ is He, he takes care of the guilt of our sins that we can't fix. And what He asks of us, and here's the question that we started off with, what am I supposed to be doing what he asks of us is to take upon ourselves the divine image. And that's where Peter goes. That, that through these promises you might be partakers of the divine image. What God wants from you, what God wants from me, is for us to be like God. Period. Bottom line. If you're not getting up every day as a Christian and trying to be like God, then you're failing of, of your service to God. And I say that without hesitation. You, you remember some years ago when somebody came out with these little wristbands, these little rubber wristbands that had WWJD on them? What would Jesus do? If you're like me, I, you know, that, that, was, that was a source of some degree of criticism and ha, ha, ha. But I'm going to tell you, as I've gotten older, that's the question we need to be asking ourselves all the time. There was some legitimacy behind whoever came up with that. Because what I need to be doing is what Jesus was doing because what Jesus was, was the revelation of God. God in the flesh. God manifested so that we might see God. And so our job ultimately is to transform our character. If you're 70 years old, you've been a Christian for 50 years since you've been 20, and you haven't changed your character... And please understand, you've missed the boat as to what we're supposed to be doing. So, having said that, go to the next section, okay? Peter starts off by saying, here's the significance of God's Word. And, and, and then he says, beginning in verse 5, for this very reason. Well, well, what reason? Well, because the promises of God that we've learned through His Word ha have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and through these we're partakers of the divine nature. That's who we are. That's who we're trying to be. And because of that, for this very reason, giving all diligence add to your faith. Christianity ought to change you. And it ought to change me. I ought to be better than I was yesterday. I need to make sure my trust in God doesn't just stop with, okay, I believe that my trust in God becomes an active part of my life and that I am to develop these characters, these qualities that are the qualities of God. Now, how do I do that? Well, let me suggest to you first of all, these things are not hard to define, but they're hard to do. How do you become self-controlled? I mentioned before my issues with traffic. I have been short-tempered my whole life. It is one of those just kind of traits that I don't know where I got it. I wish I knew because I'd, I'd get mad at them. Uh, but I've just dealt with it since I was a kid. And, and, and there's not an easy way to get, to get better at that. You can pick up all these self-help books that say, here's point one, point two, point three. 
I'm going to tell you the way that you become better at self-control. You, you determine in your mind you're going to become better at it. That is the point of James chapter 1. Don't say when you're tempted, I'm tempted of God. You're tempted when you're drawn away of your own desires and enticed. And the desire to get mad, whether I think it's fair or not, is something that I have to fight. Every one of these things, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, these are acts of will. You can't just float through Christianity and think that you're going to get better every day. without working at it. So let me preface these things that I'll run through quickly by just asking you, which of these are you working on? You got something stuck up on your mirror that says today I'm going to be more patient and here's what I'm going to do. Today I'm going to be more godly and here's what I'm going to do. Uh, you, you know, athletes do this kind of stuff all the time. They, they give themselves goals, daily goals that they can work on. Business people do this all the time. They make notes and memos. These are the things I need to focus on in regards to this upcoming interview or this, this sales activity that we're going. Why can't we do this as Christians? Add to your faith. Virtue. The, the word is arte. Uh, it, it, in, in, the, in, in the older translations... The Latin word that we, that we have our English word from, virtue, simply means manliness. And it carries with it the idea of standing up in the face of difficulty and being courageous and doing what needs to be done. But the Greek word means excellence. And, and I'm not sure but what that's exactly what God has in mind. And, and in my own opinion, sometimes I think this word becomes first because it governs everything else. A person given to excellence is never satisfied with mediocrity. Never satisfied with mediocrity. Uh, I like to play golf. Played golf with a couple guys this week. Uh, I love the game and I hate the game at the same time because I'm a perfectionist. And if you're a perfectionist, if you hit a bad shot and it turns out good... You hit it offline, it hits a tree, bounces back onto the green at six inches from the cup for a birdie. You're upset. You're upset because you hit it bad. Because you didn't do what you were trying to do. That's what perfectionism does. But I'm going to tell you something else. That's what excellence demands as well. It demands that we are not satisfied with giving a half effort. I'm going to say this real generally, and I'm going to stop for a second, and I don't want anybody to be offended. If we're taking notes on this lesson, great. If we're taking notes about anything else, can you wait and do that later? If for no other reason, then it is absolutely distracting the dog out of me. Excellence is something we have to be committed to. So I ask you again, this is, this is self-reflection stuff. Are you satisfied with mediocrity in your service to God? Showing up 
from time to time, not really being involved, not really working on anything in particular, just kind of going with the flow. Well, I go to church. I don't do bad things. I, I, I love Jesus. And, and that's the extent of your service to God? Is that all you're getting? Or, or are you diligently working? Are, are, are you committed to being the very best that you can be? And then you take these other things, and does that principle apply? Are, are you excellent when it comes to knowledge? Do you know all you need to know? And I can answer this one for you. No, you don't. And, and, and what about self-control? Are you really good at exercising your will over your emotion? Whatever the issue is. If it's anger, if it's lust, if it's greed, if it's pride, whatever the lust is, are you in control of that? And are you doing it excellently? Or are you just doing it some good days, some bad days? We need to work towards no bad days, folks. And, and not only am I adding those things, I, I'm, I'm, I'm adding perseverance. Now, we've talked about suffering and we've talked about being under authority and submission and doing good works and and how hard that is when our emotions are all over the map. Well, this is where the perseverance stuff comes in. If the rest of your life is going to be physically difficult, burdening, overbearing, because of health, because of family, because of weakness, are you going to stick... If your spouse leaves you, if everybody you know forsakes the Lord, are you going to persevere? Are you going to be excellent at that? Or is there a point where Satan can get you? You go back and study Job. That's the debate between God and Job. Job is an upright man in the eyes of God. Satan is looking for people to test, and God asks Satan, hey, you thought about Job? Satan's first reply is, I can't touch Job because you've just made it where he's never going to leave you. And God says, okay, take your best shot. You can't kill him. So Satan takes his best shot. And Job perseveres without understanding what you and I understand. And, and Satan comes back and accuses God again. Well, if you just let me, if you, if you let me touch him, then, then, then everything's going to change. I don't know how long Job lived with the horrid disease that he had. But he was excellent in his perseverance. So, so here's the question. If that's life for you, are you going to be excellent at sticking it out? To your perseverance, godliness. Is being well-pleasing to God the measuring stick of everything you do? I'm going to dress this way because it's well-pleasing to God. I'm going to talk this way because it's well-pleasing to God. I'm going to think this way because it's well-pleasing to God. I'm going to be involved with my local congregation because it's well-pleasing to God. I'm going to be this kind of influence, or I'm going to talk to people about the gospel, or, or I'm going to stand up in the face of difficulty because it is well-pleasing to God. Brotherly kindness. Am I excellent in my relationship with you. This is brother love is what it is. And, it, and, and Peter's already touched on this how many times in the first epistle? 
that we love one another fervently, that we be hospitable to one another, that we honor the brotherhood, no matter the circumstance. Am I excellent in that? And then love generally, uh, adding to brotherly kindness, agape. Just love for everybody. Everybody comes before me. That's tough. It's tough when you don't like a circumstance because you think it's not what it ought to be. Are, are you putting everybody else before yourself? Now, folks, this is a lifetime of development. We could spend our time defining all these terms, and I could give you four or five-step process. Here's the problem with self-help books and four or five-step processes. What's well, four or five steps that help me are not necessarily four or five steps that are going to help you. And if you don't believe that, go read a book about how to have a successful marriage because whoever wrote it, I ain't married to my wife. And they're not married to her husband. You and I have to figure this stuff out. But it starts with determination. So, take this confidence that you have in God and build on it to become like God. And then finally, uh, the, the last section here, beginning in verse 7, if these are yours and abound, uh, you'll never, neither be barren nor unfruitful. Actually, he begins that thought back up in verse 5 when he says, giving all diligence. And then again in verse 10, therefore, brethren, being even more diligent. And, and this is the last admonition I would make. We've got to work hard at this stuff. That's what diligence is. Really, the Greek word here means speed. Get in a hurry. You're in a hurry to do things that are important to you. And that's the point. That, that is the, the, the idea. It's eagerness or earnestness or endeavor. Uh, it, it is Paul telling Timothy to study to show yourself approved. Give haste. Give de, uh, diligence. Work at it really, really hard. Because this is valuable stuff. If we don't get this, we're going to fail at everything we've talked about this week. Say that again. If we don't get this, we're going to fail at everything we've talked about this week. Because there's going to come a point in time where our trust in God's going to fail. Because we're not using the word to grow. So just, just how hard are you working? Peter says, uh, if these things are not abounding in you, you're going to be empty and unfruitful. You're, you're never going to bring anything to God. Go back to John chapter 15. What does Jesus say about unfruitful branches? They're not worth anything but to be cast into the fire and burned. And don't think that you and I are the exception to that rule. Do, do you really believe that somehow or the other, out of all the people in all of history and in all the future that serve the Lord, God's going to look at you or God's going to look at me and say, well, I'm going to let this guy go because I really like him. He didn't work very hard. He wasn't diligent. He was pretty empty. He was barren. He didn't bring much to me. But nah, I, I think I'll let him go. Man, don't fool yourself. None of us are that special. He goes on in, in verse 9. If you lack these things, you're blind. You, you, you don't even remember what God has done for you. So, be even more diligent. Because if you do these things, you're not going to have to worry so much about your temptations because you're working on pleasing God all the time. You're not going to be worried about what pleases you. You're going to worry about being excellent in what pleases God. So you're not going to stumble because Satan doesn't have anything on a man who doesn't care about his own will. Satan only is successful with people who are selfish. So if you do these things, you'll never stumble. 
but an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. This is interesting language, and Paul does this from time to time. You know, it's one thing to get to go to heaven. It's another thing to get to go to heaven richly. <laughs> I don't think there's any way we can fully understand this till the day we get there. But the day we get there, I have every certainty that we're going to think, wow, this is beyond anything I could have ever imagined. This is what Peter meant when he said, our entrance is being supplied abundantly. Now, folks, these are not hard things to understand. This is probably, of everything we've talked about this week, the most simple group of admonitions. Pay attention to God's Word. It is the key to your discipleship, and the day you let it go is the day you're going to start leaving the Lord. That's where the promises are. That's where we understand grace and mercy. That's where we learn how to, to partake of the divine nature. And then understanding that, then there's things we got to be working on. And I challenge you. We just talked about this at home with the Beatitudes. And it's the same kind of list. These are the things we have to be serious about doing. Have you ever in your life really worked on these things? Or is it just kind of incidental? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be self-controlled. No, take a month and say, this is my goal. I'm going to get better at this. And then give yourself to it and figure out how to do that. Whatever helps you. Add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godly, brotherly, kindness, and love. And add it diligently. Work hard. I'm going to tell you, this is interesting to me. If I told you in five years I'd give you $5 million dollars, And what I said to you is, I want to see these changes in your life. And I want you to work hard at it. Five years. I suspect there's a lot of folks that would do everything I asked them to do for that $5 million. It's though I can do anything for a limited period of time. We are talking about blessings that are so far abundantly beyond anything we can possibly imagine that for God to ask us to give a lifetime of diligent, hard work, it'll still be better than anything we could have imagined and be worth whatever sacrifice. Paul says, our light affliction, which for a moment works for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And and so I, I, I would ask you to take this seriously. If you're trying to serve the Lord, try harder. Set some goals. Become godly. And and you can pretty much rest your head on your pillow at night and know for sure that God's going to save you. Thanks for your attention tonight. If there are things in your life that you need to change, uh, if you've never obeyed the gospel and called God your Father, uh, and we could help you do those things tonight, we invite your response while we stand and sing.